like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, I am completing uh, what has been a six-part series on Philip K. Dick's 1962 masterpiece, the Hugo Award-winning novel, The Man in the High Castle. So everything is coming up to this. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous five episodes if if you read this novel to get my thoughts on the scenes up to this point to get kind of a feel for my point of view on it. Of course, if you're just joining us, you know, um, it'll be hard to jump in at, at, at this point. Um, but, you know, it's enough to say that this novel is Dick's exploration of the theme of reality, uh, which he goes at by setting uh, a handful of characters in a world in which the Nazis and the Japanese won the Second World War. And so we get kind of the, the theme of what life would be like under a United States that was half occupied by the Japanese and half by the Germans. And then we're kind of thrust in the middle of some kind of power politics in between Germany and Japan in the context of, a, of an important transition as the head of the German government, the head of the Third Reich, has just died. And then there's a question of who's going to succeed. Now, most of the novel pretty much all the novel is set in the Japanese occupied part of the country, particularly in San Francisco and Colorado. And we have a relatively small set of characters. And by the time we get to the, the part of the novel I'm going to look at today, the last, I don't know, 40, 40 pages or so, last three chapters, most of their story arcs are reaching their, their conclusion. So what we one said, OK, so we have two characters, Juliana and Joe, uh, Juliana Frink, whose husband is in San Francisco and they're basically estranged. She is teaching defense and at a kind of a gym in Colorado. She hooks up with an Italian man, uh, a former ex-soldier named Joe. And then they eventually decide to seek out the author of a novel called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which Juliana is becoming increasingly fascinated with over the course of the novel. This novel is special because it shows a world in which the Allies won the Second World War, basically the opposite of the world that they live in. But it's not quite our world. It's a little bit different than our world, but, you know, um, it's... It's kind of a third possible reality, if you consider the one described in The Man in the Castle and then our own. So that's one set of characters in there on this little quest to find the author of this novel and talk to him. Then we have uh, the head of, you know, one of the Japanese officials that are running occupation. I think he's like in the trade delegation. He works out of a building called the Nippon Times. I guess that's the newspaper, but uh, he, he's kind of an official. He works out of there. And he is waiting for a Japanese high-ranking official, an older man, to come to San Francisco so they can have a meeting with this man, Baines, who is uh, basically a German officer, uh, an undercover, kind of basically a spy for someone in the German government. He's coming, he comes to San Francisco posing as a 
a Swedish like trade official. So that's kind of a second plot line. Then we have one with Frank Frank, who's actually Juliana's husband and his partner, Ed McCarthy, who are, who are trying to start a business independently making jewelry. And then we have a plot line dealing with a, a man who runs an antique store named Childen, who's beginning increasingly frustrated with his job, um, partially because he he knows he's selling kind of kitschy old American knickknacks to Japanese who kind of fetishize that. And he, he realizes he's in this kind of very colonial relationship with a dominant Japanese power, yet he very much accepts it. He gets accepted so much that he even becomes fascinated with a young Japanese couple, the Karusas, Karusas. Um, and they, he even gives them gifts and things. So he's trying to make them their customer, but he's also becomes just fascinated with him. He's sort of in love with um, this um, young Japanese woman, the, the woman in the couple. And so he's he's got his own storyline. And then we have some other minor characters like uh, the, the Reichskonsul in San Francisco. His narrative is kind of funny because he's always being forced to do these silly little consular duties. But he's also in contact with the German government. And he's basically charged with trying to find this, this undercover agent who, you know, is going to be delivering information to the Japanese shortly so that's his job now by the in the last episode we talked about how a lot of these plot lines kind of reach reach the crescendo and reach some degree of resolution for instance during the meeting between this german official baines whose real name was wagner and the japanese the nippon times is attacked this attack is repulsed by by the japanese but it led to the death of the the two men and uh our japanese official tagomi feels very much guilt over the deaths of those um, Gestapo officers or soldiers. Frank Frink has been arrested uh, for uh, basically some for being a con artist for things he did earlier in the novel, and he's also being arrested for being a Jew. And his 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 true identity as as a Jew is revealed. And perhaps in the most interesting of the plot lines that are resolved or, or reaching re resolution is Childen, who finds out that this this young Japanese couple that's basically courting him and meeting him a lot and taught, you know, he gives him a gift of a original pin made by an American craftsman. In fact, it's Frank Frink. And he says it's, it's a really special thing because it it's kind of a pure, authentic, original piece of, of material and he goes into a long philosophical discussion of what, why it's so great and original and, and and special but then he turns this around and says we just need to mass produce this for the Japanese masses and make some money and I have people who can connect you to that and at this point Childen stands up for himself and stands up for American craftsmanship and refuses this offer and and leaves somewhat frustrated about what he, he's gone through but also you know, for the first time in in many years, it seems, standing up for himself and standing up for American identity and American ingenuity and American craftsmanship. So we kind of have in the in I think they're both in chapter 12, but maybe once in chapter 11, once in chapter 12, but two examples of characters really standing up for something in, in the Togomi standing up to the, the Germans and Childen standing up to this young Japanese couple that he's been entranced with 
Now, the philosophical themes overcoming all these stories that's really on every page of this novel from beginning to the end in some degree, and it's almost in every character, even in almost every artifact and item, is this question of how do we determine what is real or not? And the conclusion we seem to come to is it's almost impossible to do that. And one of the characters, a minor character earlier in the story, talks about, you know, we, you know a thing can have historicity, but that's based on our perception and that's based on how we feel it and interact with it it doesn't prove that it's really authentic and there's all these fakes. And that's why it's interesting. Dick uses the Japanese fascination with antiques in his story. I don't know if that's a real thing, but in the story it is. These Japanese occupiers are fascinated with American antiques. And what's interesting about that is there's so many fake antiques on the market. In fact, it's probably true that very little of the stuff the Japanese consumer consuming public buys of these antiques is actually authentic material most of it's faked in fact frank frank worked for a business that made a lot of its money producing fakes but there's a lot of characters also who put on false fronts and false identities and wear different masks and then there's this meta question we have that's introduced by the novel the grasshopper lies heavy about whether the world that these characters dwell in is real maybe it's also fake um, and that's, that's all I'll say for at this point, but really you're going to have to go back and listen to my previous episodes to get a full picture of what this novel has been doing. And even I've been talking about this novel for, it seems a very long time, but I know I'm just scratching the surface and this is a really deep novel. It's one of the richest Dick wrote. I, I don't know if it's one of his best. It's not even, it's not one of my favorite, but it's. It's really thematically thick. I mean, a lot of his books are, are rich thematically, where he has a lot of ideas and he throws them all out there. This novel is, is focused on this theme of what is real. And I think it really culminates, it's the culmination of a series of novels he wrote, starting with Cosmic Puppets, that deal with this question of, of what is reality. And this is more of a meta-philosophical analysis on, the, on this question. But with that kind of introduction to the novel out of the way and my plea for you to to listen to my full comments on the first 12 chapters of this novel, I'm going to uh, talk through the final three chapters of the novel and see how these characters' storylines end over the course of the final three chapters of The Man in the High Castle. Okay, so chapter 13 is, I think it's a little bit different because in a lot of these chapters in this book, Dick would look at like two different sets of characters or two different um, settings and sometimes it seems a little bit arbitrary how he's dividing up these chapters chapter 13 though is all set in one with one set of characters and it's all about juliana and joe's quest to find this man the, this author of the grasshopper lies heavy heavy and they are in in denver and they're basically starting out with a shopping spree now what we get in this chapter is a lot of people lying at least one character he's lying about who he is and what he wants and why he's doing things it's all kind of a it's a really good example of how this novel is about false fronts and false identities and false characterizations so joe is taking juliana on the shopping spree and this is one of the reasons juliana seems to like joe is that he seemed to be someone who'd be willing to spend a lot of money and in fact he is and he wants her to buy a lot of really revealing dresses and he actually picks out this Italian dress for her that shows off her body. And Juliana is described various times in this novel as, as extremely uh, good looking. Um, now, you think it's because that's what Joe wants. But the real reason he's doing this is because he wants her to distract and draw the attention of 
of Abdurnson, the author of The Grasshopper Lives Heavy, because he has an actual agenda, and that is that he's a Gestapo officer who's been set to assassinate the author of this book for, you know, he, he wrote this book that presents this image of reality in which the Allies won the Second World War. Of course, the Germans don't want that. The Japanese, you know, they accept that the banning of the book, but they do it in a really flexible and weak way and they let him live. And he was living in this place called the High Castle, or at least that's what the rumor is, that he lives in this kind of big palace in the mountains in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And the Japanese basically want let him alone and let the book be distributed. But the Jap- the Germans want him dead, and so they send this they sent this agent to to kill him. And that's who Joe is. Joe is essentially this this Gestapo agent. And over the course of this chapter, Joe reveals himself to be more and more authoritarian. In fact, some of the nicest parts of this book up to this point were these conversations between Joe and Juliana, where they they talked often as as almost as equal intellectual equals anyways, especially when they're debating and talking about the grasshopper lies heavy and what it means and the themes of the book. And Juliana came at the book with this idea that there's really a different world presented in the pages of this text. Joe's response was more vulgar and cynical saying, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if America won or Germany and Japan win because basically empire's empire, power's power. And it would have been the same no matter what. But they had these really nice conversations about it. But in this chapter, Joe, who, you know, the clock is ticking on his mission, he starts to get more authoritarian and more aggressive and more demanding. And he starts being more pushy. And Joey even at one point gets annoyed at, at the way she's spending and how much time she's taking. He, he really wants to move on with, with this and, you know, just get this close that really has this goal of really attracting Abertson and then move on to... Cheyenne. In fact, Juliana wants to stay for three days, and she asks Joe if she can stay for three days. They're really, in her mind, there's no rush to go to Cheyenne, Wyoming. But Joe says, "No, we're leaving. We're not even staying for the night. We're leaving right now." And then they start to fight over this, and he starts to threaten her and get, you know, more aggressive. And at one point, he even threatens to, "If you, if we don't leave, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you." And then finally, she figures it out, and he confesses. She figures out that he's actually on a mission to assassinate Abertson and she kind of puts everything together, all the clues that she's, you know, had in her short relationship with this man. And he confesses this. He doesn't deny it, that this is a mission, but basically now he tries to, he's being an authoritarian figure and he says, you're going to do this. This is your role in my mission. And if you don't do it, there's going to be trouble. And she has an anxiety attack and she starts to talk about how she needs pills and she's trying to delay the trip. And, Joe's, of course, resisting this, and he gives her some pills, but she doesn't entirely trust them. And eventually, they have a fight, and the fight results in her cutting his throat, uh, Joe's throat, with a, with a razor. It was basically a self-defense swing, and that's one thing she specializes in. She teaches these kind of self-defense martial arts courses. So she was able to have this blade in her hand and use it to swipe at him, and she ends up cutting his, his throat and... She, you know, she thinks about helping him and they have a little bit of a kind of a creepy conversation where they kind of debate which which artery she must have cut. And he says aorta and she says, no, it must be your carotid. Your aorta is in your heart. But basically he's bleeding out at this point and then she leaves him to die. So after fleeing, leaving for him for dead, she goes to her car and she consults the I Ching to decide what to do. And... The I Ching basically, the, 
this is what she uses always for divination. Her and her husband both are, are fascinated with the I Ching and they use it often to make important life decisions. So what she finds out by doing a divination, um, doing a reading on the I Ching is it's, she see, it seems to instruct her to go on to Cheyenne to warn Abertson about these threats on his life because there'll be other people like Joe who will come in the future. Also warn her, basically suggest her to leave Joe behind, not to seek out help for him. And then she, she does it. She says, quote, so it's no use to go back to the hotel and make sure about him. It's hopeless because there will be others sent out. Again, the Oracle says even more emphatically, get up to Cheyenne and warn Abertson. However dangerous it is to me, I must bring him the truth. So this is this uh, critical decision in Juliana's life where she decides to move on and, and go on to Abertson. Now, she's still in Denver, though. So the first thing she does is she calls Cheyenne. She, she gets Abertson's number and she calls them. And the call is answered by, by Mrs. Abertson. And she basically says, I'm going to come and visit. And I've read the book and I, I, I want to talk to your husband. She doesn't, though, mention the, the Gestapo threat on her on Abertson's life. She leaves that out. And she actually thinks about after the conversation why she didn't mention this. She doesn't really know why. But anyways, she she does insist that she's going to come and visit. And but more or less, they, they welcome her to come to come to to Cheyenne if she wills it. Now, this chapter ends with her basically going to a diner and enjoying a sandwich while all these dramatic things had happened around her. And it's kind of a nice little moment that Dick writes about, quote, after he had ordered a sandwich, after she had ordered a sandwich and a Coke and was sitting, smoking a cigarette and resting, she realized with this rush of unbelieving horror that she had said nothing to Mrs. Abertson about the Gestapo man or the SD man or whatever he was, that Joe Sinadella she had left in the hotel room in Denver. She simply could not believe it. I forgot, she said to herself. It must completely be out of my mind. How can I be? I must be nuts. I must be terribly sick and stupid and nuts. For a moment, she fumbled with her purse, trying to find change for another call. No, she decided as she started up from the stool. I can't call them again tonight. I'll let it go. It's just too goddamn late. I'm tired, and they'll probably sleep by now. She ate her chicken salad sandwich, drank her coat, and then she drove to the nearest motel, rented a room, and clapped trembling into bed. And that's the end of, of chapter 13. It doesn't quite finish up Juliana's storyline. In fact, she's how we're going to end up the novel, but um, she's... She's on her way to, to Cheyenne to meet the man in the high castle, the author of The Grasshopper Lives Heavy. And with that, we can move on to chapter 14, where the storyline of, of Childen and Tagomi are, are wrapped up. So Tagomi, the last we saw him, he, he killed these two SD officers, Gestapo officers who attacked the Nippon Times. It was self-defense, but he... He really sort of regrets doing this, and he, he thinks the, guy, the calculus of, of life was misbalanced here. He killed two people to save the life of one man, this Baines. And so he has some guilt about that. He feels he really can't go back to his job. He also is dealing with the news that, that Baines, or, or Wagner, his real name is, had given him. We assume it's his real name. I mean, it's hard to trust anything in this novel, actually. But... The news he got, which is that after the secession, if the Goebbels faction wins the secession, which seems likely at that point, that there's going to be a sneak attack and the Japanese home islands are going to be nuked by the Germans and you know the Germans are going to betray their alliance and seek domination over the entire world and the Japanese will be the victims of that. And so he also 
regrets war, the war that's going to come. And so he eventually decides to go to the store of Childen. Now, Chil the very first encounter in the book actually was Childen, Togomi calling Childen to seek out an, an antique that he had ordered. So the book's kind of coming full circle here. And he goes to Childen's stop. And this is where he bought the Colt 44, which he had used to kill these German um, soldiers. Now, we have good reason to believe that this was a fake antique because there are other Colt 44s in the novel that we know very sure were, were fakes, even though it's not really clear. But he wants to go and basically return it to, to Childen and get his money back, so to speak, or, or just kind of leave it there. And the reason he wants to get rid of this is he wants to get rid of the physical memory of this horrible event and of this past. Quote, free myself, he decided with excitement. When the gun goes, it all leaves, the cloud of the past. For it is not merely in my psyche. It is, as has always been said with the theory of historicity, within the gun as well, an equation between us. End quote. And this, this feeds back to a lot of conversations in the novel before about the essential nature of, of things and the essence in things. And one reason the Japanese like these artifacts is they feel this historicity when they touch these things, whether they're kitschy old Mickey Mouse watches or they're actual antiques like these Colt 44 rifle uh, pistols, revolvers, I guess. You know, they, they still have that essential historicity, but that's also what kind of ties him to the events that that gun was associated with. Now it's not the Civil War or the American past, but this these, this killing and this this fighting he was involved in and all the other baggage tied into it. So he, he wants to return it. Now, Childen, you know, basically says, I'm not going to accept it. Um, I'm not going to buy, buy it back from you. And the reason for this, it's, you know, for me, it's kind of clear. It's, it's on the one hand, he's sick and tired of this attitude of the Japanese towards him and other and American craftspeople. He, it seems he also wants to invest in actual promoting these, these, this jewelry made by Frank Frank and his partner because they are the products of true American craftsmanship, not mass-produced trinkets like some of the other things. And it's not necessarily to satisfy the, the, the elite Japanese um, tastes and their desire for historicity. It's actually a true authentic creativity that he wants to move into. And then he also was bitten by this Colt 44 before. It's a memory of, of this traumatic event earlier that happened to him earlier where he realized that he's been selling fakes. And he actually at one point denies that he ever had this Colt 44. He ever sold these Colt 44s to Togomi. Togomi you know, says, no, it, I definitely bought it from this store. But nevertheless, Childen refuses to take it back. And then Childen says, no, why don't you look at this jewelry? I have these. Maybe you want to buy these. And he says, they're not old. They're American made, but they're not old. And so we really see him shifting the, his focus of his business to promoting these these what he's seen as authentic American products of, of craftsmen and reflecting the true creativity of the nation, not the long dead past from before the war, but current creativity of, of the American craftsmen. And so he shows him this Ed Frank jewelry that he is, that's there, you know, he, he took it in as consignment and he's been taking advantage of it ever since, but he's trying to sell this stuff. Now, eventually Togomi agrees to take one. He's, He's not really that impressed, but he says, okay, I believe you. 
or at least I'll try it. So I'll look at this a few minutes each day, and if I have any experience, then I'll I'll buy it. If not, I'll just return it. And Chilton says, okay, and whatever. And then Tagomi leaves, and he just goes out into the town. He travels by pedicab. In fact, I think and this is the sixth episode. I haven't talked about the pedicab. So transport, public transportation in this San Francisco is all done by pedicabs, which is like that kind of rickshaw that's run by a bike, you know, and a lot of the people who pull the pedicabs or drive the pedicabs are Chinese workers. So it's not quite like rickshaws, but it's kind of a step up from rickshaws, but it has that same kind of feeling of, of kind of people being moved around by the physical labor of others, which very much is something that makes us think of colonial relationships and the types of colonial relationships that, you know, that the Japanese were known for throughout Asia, but they're bringing them to, to the United States. So he sits down and he starts to meditate on this piece of jewelry he bought. It's a little piece of silver. Quote, if I shake it violently like the old recalcitrant watch, he did so up and down, or like a dice in a critical game. Awaken the deity inside. Pre-adventure he sleepeth, or he is on a journey, titillating high, heavy irony by Prophet Elijah, or he is pursuing. Mr. Togomi violently shook the silver squiggle up and down in his clenched fist once more. Call him louder. Again, he scrutinized. Little thing, you are empty, he thought. Curse at you, he told himself, frighten it. My patience is running out, he said in sotto voce. And what then? Fling it in the gutter, breathe it in, shake it, breathe on it, win me the game? He laughed. Adult-pated involvement here in the warm sunlight, spectacle to whoever comes along, peeking around guiltily now. But no one saw. Old men snoozing, measure of relief then. Tried everything, he realized. Pleaded, contemplated, threatened, philosophized at length. What else could be done? Could I but stay here? It is denied me. Opportunity will occur again. And yet, as W.S. Gilbert says, such an opportunity will not occur again. Is this so? I feel to be so. And it's this kind of conversation he has with himself over like two or three pages of, of the novel where he's thinking about this item. He's kind of meditating on it. And eventually he shifts. He, he sort of shifts into another reality momentarily. And the first sign that he did this is the, like the roads are different and there's no pedicabs. And... There's cars and buses and not pedicabs. And he goes to look for a pedicab and he can't find it. And, you know, he's only, it's only for a moment or only for a short period of time. And then he kind of shifts back to his world. And then there are pedicabs again. But for a brief moment after he kind of meditated on this piece of jewelry, he kind of shifted into, into this other reality. Presumably the reality described in The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, although I don't, I'm not sure that's 100% clear, but it is a world it seems where the Americans won this, the Second World War, where the Allies won the Second World War. It's not a world in which the Japanese dominate San Francisco and the West Coast. So in that sense, it's, it's likely the world that the grasshopper lies heavy, but it could perhaps be our world that he, he shifted into. So he just had this profound experience because of this piece of jewelry made by Frank Frink. He goes back to the Nippon Times, and he has a meeting with a man named Mr. Reese. So Reese, is, Reese is actually the Reich's Council in San Francisco, who, who we've met before, but I think this is the first this is the first meeting in the novel between Togomi and and Reese. And the basic the real agenda in this meeting is Reese wants this Frank Frank, who has been arrested for fraud recently, to be handed over to the Germans. 
because under German law, he as a Jew, because it's revealed he was, it's found out he was a Jew. Because of that, he should be under the custody of the Germans. And of course, the we all know that it probably means they're going to go kill him if they get him into his hands. And to go me at this point, not knowing that this piece of jewelry that he used to have this meditation and this this experience just a few moments earlier, you know, created. He doesn't know that this man created this thing. He does, though, release this man. And essentially, he saves Frank Frink's life just through a kind of a bureaucratic uh, signature. A sign, you know, he signed the document and essentially frees Frank Frink and, and saves his life. The chapter, the, or his story sort of ends with Tagomi having a heart attack. And as he's dying, he starts to think about time and the truth and the oracle and various things. But um, this, the, the feeling we get at the, end of the, at the end of his story is that he's dying. The last thing he did was to save the life of, of this Frank Frank. And that's whose story chapter 14 uh, completes with. We just get a few pages where Frank Frank has been released from jail and he eventually goes to find his business partner, Ed McCarthy. And he, earlier in the novel, he'd been thinking about quitting because he was frustrated. He, they weren't selling any jewelry. And he recommits to the business and to making this jewelry and, and giving it another go as a craftsperson. And this parallels Childen's reinvestment or his kind of decision to not sell antiques, but rather to represent and try to sell and, and, and promote American um, crafts and an American skill and creativity. And so Frank's and Childen's in a, in a, in a strange way, Tagomi stories all come together at one point. And the Japanese tyrant, the Japanese overlord dies and it's the Americans stepping up and asserting their independence of, of their creative, of their creativity and their craft. And I think even though this novel is really about the nature of reality and how we can judge reality and can we get to it at all? Is it something we can even grasp or think about? It's also a statement about, about creativity and work and the value of work and the value of, of that kind of authentic creativity versus the mass market um, production that's was so common. It's even something that talk, is talked about in The Grasshopper Lives Heavy when the author imagines the world dominated by America after the war and what America sells are trinkets and mass-produced items and television and all that kind of crap that Dick had such problems with. And he, by focusing on Frank Frank and, his, and Ed McCarthy and his work, is making a statement in support of a more authentic kind of creativity among working people than what's provided by the factory. And I think this gets into a lot of the themes that Dick wrote about in terms of automation and production in other works. And it actually feeds nicely into a novel that wouldn't be written until 1969 or 1970, and that's Galactic Pot Healer, which is his best work, best book, book on work and the nature of work and the nature of creativity. Now, I'm probably in the minority in thinking that The Man in the High Castle could have ended at this point and it would have been a perfectly good novel. Um, but we do get one more chapter, chapter 15, which wraps up a few other items, really two. Um, and basically, it's the characters we really don't know what's, what's happened to them yet. The first is Wagner. And Wagner has, has completed his mission of telling the Japanese about this threat and encouraging them to do what they could to mitigate the transition and maybe help um, 
the right guy get in charge. Now, the right guy was actually a really bad guy. Um, now, all the success, possible successors to this man named Bormann were historical Nazis. Um, Goebbels is the one who, who was behind this plan. I think it was called Operation Dandelion to attack Japan. Now, the guy who was against it is Reinhard Heydrich, who was... He died, I think, in 1942 or so. Um, now, as far as I understand it, Operation Reinhardt, which was the the SS operation to exterminate the Jews of the general government in Poland, which was the German-occupied part of Poland. And it was organized around the camps of Treblinka and Belzec and Sobibor. It was named after him. He had already been killed by the point that operation was commenced by, I think it was Czech resistance. And the Czechs were severely punished for, for that assassination attempt. Um, and I think he was a major player in the Holocaust. So, but Dick here presents him as as the more, at least the force in the post-war Germany that didn't want to break the alliance with Japan and wasn't going to attack them. And and Wagner kind of works in the the Heinrich faction um, in the German government. So, where we when we meet Wagner after he he delivered this material, this news, this this warning to the Japanese, is he's just kind of hoping for the best. Um, he's thinks about the future of the Nazi project, which is something that's been hinted at throughout the novel from the beginning. And especially in the first half of the novel, there's a lot of talk about kind of where Germany was going. And the sense we got is that it really had no clear future. It was projecting itself into the future. It was really fulfilling this kind of Nazi view of fascist view of action and will and projecting into the future. But it didn't really have any concrete goals. It was engaged in all these massive projects like eradicating the Slavs, eradicating Africans, draining the Mediterranean, making it farmland, going to the, going to space. Those are the main projects mentioned. But it didn't seem it had any kind of real purpose in doing that. It was just doing it because it, they could. And so there's a lot of questioning that Wagner has about the future of the Nazi project altogether. Um, eventually, he's found by black shirts and, you know, basically German, um, you know, Nazi officers. And they say they're from Heydrich. And they say they're going to take him back to Germany. And with this, Wagner starts to have hope that maybe Goebbels' faction in Berlin will fall and maybe his guy will get into power and that will prevent uh, the spreading of the war and the continuation of the war with the destruction of, of Japan. But, of course, we have no real good reason to think that these Nazis are telling the truth to Wagner. They say they're from Heydrich's faction, but they could have just as easily been from Goebbels' faction, completing the mission to bring him back to Berlin, which has been their mission, the mission of Rice and, and other Nazis in San Francisco from the, from the beginning of the novel. So there's no basis for truth on this, and I think even Wagner realizes this by the end of his storyline. But the last we meet him is he's on his way back to Berlin in meeting some unknown fate. His last thought is actually quite pessimistic that hate will continue to be a driving force in world history and cause ongoing conflicts. And in a sense, the war will never end. And then we move to the final section of the novel, which covers Juliana Frink's travels to Cheyenne to see the man in the high castle. She actually gets the news report of the killing of Joe in the hotel room. And so she's sort of on the run from the police at this point. But she eventually makes it to, to Cheyenne. She 
wears this dress that Joe had actually bought for her. And as she was changing, she actually threw out all this jewelry. And the jewelry had like stuff from Frank, her ex-husband, but also stuff from other men. And she wears one. It's not clear if she wore Frank's. I, I think it would be a nice if, if she did, because she thinks about Frank at this point. And thinks about getting back together with him and, and maybe calling him and, and returning to him. Um, but first she has to fulfill her, her mission. And she goes to the Abertson's house. So she reaches the high, the high castle, which isn't a high castle at all. It's just a regular house. It's a single story house. So this idea that Abernson is living in this, hiding out in this big mansion up in the mountains is all, was all a lie. It was all mythology. In fact, he's just living in a house like anyone else. Um, and she's invited in and, you know, she begins to talk to him. So there's Mrs. Abertson is there. Caroline is her first name. And the author, is, or the author is Hawthorne Abertson. So we got this. You know, Hawthorne, of course, is the name of one of America's greatest writers, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he's, he's got this name, Hawthorne Abertson. And they start to talk about the book and Juliana comes out and asks it right away. And, and what she suspects and she gets confirmation on is, did Abertson write this novel himself or did the Oracle, did the I Ching write it? And Abertson confesses that, yes, the I Ching wrote this book, or at least he you know, he asked it questions and, you know, do these characters do this or that or is it what happened to the Americans or whatever. And so the, basically the Oracle, through a series of questions, wrote the novel and provided the material for the novel. And this has led to rumors and suggestions that maybe Dick did this with the man in the high castle. I have little doubts about that. Um, now, maybe he played with it a little bit, but I, I know I'm not sure. Maybe maybe someone knows, but I've heard it said that this was written with the I Ching. You know, maybe from time to time, but I, I just don't really buy it. Um, this is the novel is too consistent and clear. But the, the implication of the novel being written by the I Ching is the I Ching is a way for people like Juliana and Frank a way to get at an inner truth, right? And that's that's a theme throughout pretty much every page of this book, whether it's in a, what's the inner truth in a piece of jewelry or the inner truth in a lighter or in a Colt 44 or the inner truth in a man who's pretending to be a businessman, but is actually a double agent of, in the German government or a, a Gentile who's deep down is a Jew. A, uh, an Italian truck driver who's really a, a Gestapo assassin. I mean, there's character after example after example of people and things not being what they seem, but there's a deeper truth underneath it all. And one way you get at that is through the Oracle, right? And so the, the, the implication then at the end of the story is that the grasshopper lies heavy is the truth and the world these characters inhibit and inhabit and exist in and experience is not true. So she finally warns them about the threat on their life and they thank her for that. And then she basically makes a decision to get back together with Frank, who we realize, who we know just had his life saved by a random act of a bureaucrat. And, you know, and then the story kind of wraps up nicely in that way. Yeah, we have this kind of question at the end of whether anything here was real or these characters are all kind of living in a false reality and there's a deeper truth underneath it. But, you know, whether that's true or not is, is not really the point. I think what it comes down to is 
Dick exploring what, how we can verify reality in any way. And I think the conclusion he comes to is that we really can't through our experiences. And it's a lot, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a skeptical novel in this sense. Um, but obviously there's a lot going on here. So, but that kind of completes the, the plot summary. I think the, what's more interesting for me in this book than the question of, you know, did the Allies win or the Axis win, which reality is, is true, is the choices char- these characters make and the, these important choices that, that all the characters make over the course of the novel, whether it's to risk their lives or to trust a fate or to to barrel down. And, and especially, I think, like Fr- Fr- Childen and Frank's character arcs are some of the strongest. Frank started out as a very bitter person, resenting so much in his life, resenting his work, resenting the, that the Americans lost the war, resenting the loss of his wife. And he tries to start a new life for himself and he almost fails at that. He ends up getting thrown in jail and he comes out of this and he says, no, I'm going to be a creator and I'm going to do something with my life. And I, and I think that's a very nice character arc for him. Childen is even a more striking example where someone who's been a Japanese bootlicker ever since the war ended and, you know, he's he's kind of been able to make his money, make a decent living for himself by servicing Japanese fetishization of American culture, a culture that's being destroyed and, and eradicated by the very Japanese occupation. I, I couldn't help but think a lot when I read his chapters about the way white America sometimes treats Native American cultures and, and makes it a, a cultural icon or, or an artifact when in fact they're the ones who kind of eradicated that culture through the genocide and the frontier and the conquest of the new world. Yet they've kind of, they, then they, then they work to kind of preserve kind of an authentic past. Right. And of course that authentic past they try to preserve is always a construction, a manufactured entity. It's, it's not real because the, the world that created that is gone. Right. And this is the problem with historicity, I think, and the concept of historicity in the novel that a lot of the characters embrace is that, yeah, it, you can feel a tie to the history when you touch an item, right? But it's actually out of time. And when you're talking about like a whole kind of culture that gets put in that place, it's even worse because often we'll, we'll preserve an aspect of a culture like a dress or a certain type of dance or even a bit of a language or a story. But if it's detached from the social relations that created it and from the community that created it and the culture that created it, it just becomes something in a museum. It doesn't become something that it's not real anymore. And I, I think that's true of so much of what's going on in this novel. And that, that's even more important than the fact, you know, maybe there's a deeper down real world where the allies won the Second World War. It's not really about that. It's about kind of the fakeness and everything. Right. And that's why Childen is such an important character in this novel, because he realizes this at one point. He realizes the the vapid nature of of what the Japanese see in America. And that's why he insists at the end of the novel to be a spokesperson for the American crafter and American creativity, which he sees reflected in the works of Ed McCarthy and Frank Frink. The Japanese, yeah, you know, Tagomi, he sort of gets there, perhaps. You know, he kind of shifts time phases. He, he kind of goes toe dash, if you read The Dark Tower for a moment, and, and, and saw this other world. But he gets taken back right away and he still doesn't quite know what to make of it but he does 
know enough to make the moral choice to to save one man's life, a man he doesn't know, but it is a man who's had this profound effect on him. And then, you know, he dies, and that, or at least it's implied, he's he's going to die. And I think that provides some hope for a new, fresh start. That's weakened, though, by the fact that we have younger Japanese that we've met, and that's the Karusa fam family, the couple who are even worse than Togomi in a lot of ways and more closed-minded and more obsessed with trinkets and artifacts and, and fetishizing these aspects of American culture. So that's really who Chilton and Frank are going to have to rebel against is that younger generation of Japanese um, occupiers. So for me, that's the heart of the novel are these character arcs, especially, I guess, those three. Juliana's character arc, I mean, she's there to go find the man in the high castle, right? And she's there to really explore the grasshopper lies heavy. But in a way, her character arc's a little less interesting for me. It's it's really about her hooking up with this um, Gestapo agent, who she doesn't know is a Gestapo agent. It just shows he's a good one. He's able to trick her, uh, trick this very pretty smart woman for so long. But she's really there to get us to this, the, the creator of the grasshopper lies heavy. But even her at the end kind of reunites with Frank. So we, we have these characters who were all split up in the beginning. And we're reading this and we're like, what do all these characters have in common with each other? Why are they in the same book? Right? They don't seem to be doing the same thing. They seem very far afield. And even when they cross, their narratives cross a little bit. It's just for a moment and, and for reasons that you know, are just kind of marginal to the characters' main lives. Like when Frank Frank first meets Childen, it's because... Frank's trying to get money from his former boss. It has nothing to do with children, right? But in the end, these characters are all together in very concrete ways. You know, I don't know if they're ever going to all be in a room together, but if Juliana does return and children really does start to sell Frank's jewelry and Frank and Ed, you know, start to be successful, you could imagine all these characters sharing a life together and sharing some common goals and being a force of, of something, um, you know, kind of, so a positive force in, in this world. I, I, I'm not quite sure what it would be, but these characters who are all over the place that be in the novel are all sort of coming together to the same place. And they've kind of learned, all learned important lessons. So I, I think that's really the strength of this novel for me. Um, there are other things to say about it, of course, besides the metaphysics of it all. Uh, but about the metaphysics, let, let me say one thing about this. In Dick's previous three novels dealing with false realities, it's the cosmic puppets, time out of joint, and eye in the sky. In all three of those, we have a clear knowledge of what is the real, and we have a clear knowledge of why the world is fake, right? For cosmic puppets, it's the gods. In eye in the sky, it's personal individual subjectivities and how we all look at the world a little bit different with our own glasses. And in time out of joint, it's, it's political necessity. It's right. It's the government manipulating reality of one person to achieve a, a militarily and politically necessary goal. But we know what the real world is in those cases, pretty much. I mean, there's this, you could make an argument at the end of Time Out of Joint, there's a little wink-wink that, you know, maybe there's another layer here. But by and large, you leave that novel and you're like, there, there was a real world and there's the fake world that we were existing in for much of the novel. In this case, we don't have that. There's, there's no clear reason why this world is fake, right? Except that it is, right? So that's why I call it more of a meta-analysis of, the question of what's fake and what's real. There's not a real purpose for a fake world in which the Nazis won the Second World War. 
if the real world is the allies want it this, you know it's not like it's not like they're in the matrix and they're being sucked of you know their batteries for robots or something it's there's no reason for it it's just is and it's just the world's not real and i don't know if this is where dick is in his mind because he's going to write novels later on they're a little more grounded and, and clear and plot you know there's a clear plot and a story to it you know but this is it's it's kind of fascinating the way it's presented anyways but it's it's different than what he does in some of the other books where there's almost a conspiratorial attitude to the false reality here there's a little bit of that in like the spy versus spy stuff but uh, you know at the macro level there's no reason for this world to function this way but it it does and i i think this is dick and a bit maybe trying to understand why the world around him looks and feels so fake all the time you know living in 19 you know this point late 50s suburbia in california you know and he trying to grab it but he can't, he can't understand why the world is the way it is and this is a exploration of that theme so what else is here to talk about why well, I, I think dick's vision of fascism i think dick's vision of what a japanese rule would look like is very interesting i think it's 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 a vision of what nazi rule would look like had they been successful that i kind of buy from what i know of fascism and it shows that dick understood the nazi regime he understood its players it's you know it's figures he understood its philosophy a lot so i think that's fairly true to life i don't know if he the way he presents the japanese rule is kind of quaint like nice compared to the german rule i, I don't know about that maybe he wasn't as aware of the japanese atrocities in in china um, you know but I'm, I'm not sure the japanese rule would have been that kind and, you know, if if the Japanese eventually had occupied the western part of the United States, would would it have been this this way? I'm, I'm not sure about that. But Dick does present it a little bit softer. And I think that's something we could think about, you know, whether that's accurate or, or accurate is the wrong term, but realistic or not. I do think one thing that's really interesting here is the fascination of the conquered for the conqueror's culture. And it's not it's even kind of once removed because it's the conquered Americans are fascinated with the I Ching. Juliana learns judo. So they're getting now the I Ching is Chinese, but they seem to get it through the Japanese. And and that's a common motif in kind of colonial history. If you study that at all is, you know, you know, the, you, the, the colonized people often incorporate parts, aspects of the culture of, of the conquerors. And they do this for survival strategies. They do it for, practical reasons they do it because that's how they're educated you know they go to those kind of like in india educated indians went to kind of british style schools so there is this kind of adopt ad adoption of the colonizers culture and that goes on here the question i think we need to ask is you know is there something meaningful in this kind of asian traditions and this is something i doubt a little bit more i, I know there's a lot of kind of fascination and fetishizing of of Asian cultures and there's a lot of like American Buddhists and American followers of Falun Gong and other Chinese religions and that is very much how I feel when you have Tagomi you know trying to get the posters or the Mickey Mouse watch or whatever that they're fascinated in it but it's completely detached from the cultural roots that created it so it becomes just another element of kind of a fake artifact rather than a true experience and I, I sometimes feel that's what happens when these Asian traditions get translated over to the West without really kind of taking the whole culture with them. 
you know, sometimes there's a lot of picking and choosing of traditions. Like some, you know, like some aspects of Buddhism people like, but they don't necessarily take Buddhist morality with them, which is actually quite conservative and strict on, on a lot of things. They might take Buddhist meditation, but they don't take vegetarianism or, you know, the some of the more religious practices of it. So I think that is a little bit of what's going on here. I don't know if Dick goes that far, but that's how what how I feel when I see these kind of Asian traditions kind of carried over to the West, detached from their Asian roots. You know, how much of it survives and how much of it is just kitschy kind of curiosity of of Americans. I mean to say curiosity for for kitschy things. So there's that whole question here of this translating of these Asian traditions over to America in the colonial context. What else? Oh, certainly I think the theme of crafting and creativity is strong here, especially with the character of Frank and his whole story arc and related with the children. And then on the other side of this, then mass production. What does mass production do to us? You know, we, we of course have um, Benjamin's argument that the mass production of art kind of creates things that are, it loses the aura, right? The art loses its aura when it's mass produced, but it's also accessible to many people. And that's almost essentially what um, call Paul Caruza uh, ha- talks about with um, children when he says, you know, this thing, it has woo. This pin has woo. It's really special. Let's mass produce it and sell it to the Japanese vulgar masses who will buy that stuff as good luck charms. And that's when children starts to resist. But it's, can you take something that's authentic and original and mass produce it? And what's lost when you do that? Right. And then when we read The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, we learn that America's influence spreads by mass production. And so it's, I, I think that's very conscious what Dick did there by putting both, looking at mass production, both kind of from a historical perspective in The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, and then in a, as a practical business choice of a, of a young Japanese go-getter who wants to make some money. So I guess that's the, the big themes. Um, and so I'll wrap up my comments on the man, the man in the High Castle. A really great book, one of Dick's greatest. Uh, it's not my favorite, but um, it is a lot of fun. And I think it's a book you can come back to and, and get more out of each time. It's it's an experience, certainly. And I think everyone should should read it at some point in their life, especially if you're a Philip Dick fan and you haven't read it yet. You, you really have to. Of course, this is also kind of novel that you're going to bring a lot of your own baggage into it and your own ideas. And so please, please, please share your thoughts about The Man in the High Castle. Let me know what you thought of the novel. Let me know what you thought. If you know, what did I miss? What am I misinterpreting? What am I completely wrong about? Please uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave a comment right on Podbean or leave a review on iTunes to give your thoughts on on this novel, The Man on That Castle, and my thoughts on it. This is really a novel that I think we can go back and forth on and debate and talk about for, for quite a while. And if you've seen the TV show and you have any reporting you can give to me on how much of these themes carry over into the television show, I heard not much, but you know, I, I, I don't plan on watching it in the short term. But if you have any of your experiences watching the television show, please let me know about those. Is it worth watching? Should I spend the few hours binging it? Let me know. Um, but with that, I'll let you go. I'm, I'm almost at an hour here. So um, thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much for bearing with me 
through six episodes as I tried to dissect every little nuance that I could see out of The Man in the High Castle. Next up, I'll be looking at another Philip K. Dick novel, I think published the same year. I think it's also pub was published in 1962. Um, a more straightforward science fiction novel uh, called The Game Players of Titan. A very different cup of tea. It won't take me nearly as long. I think I'll have about four episodes on The Game Players of Titan. Um, but there's still a lot of interesting things to say about that novel. So I'm looking forward to talking about the game Players of Titan in my upcoming episodes. So again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your support of this podcast. And, um, you know, and thanks for sharing your love and interest in Philip K. Dick with me. So again, thanks. And I'll see you next time with the game Players of Titan. You must till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.